You're listening to It's More Complicated Than That, a podcast about world affairs produced by the students and faculty of the International Relations Program at Hobart and William Smith Colleges in Geneva, New York. I'm Kevin Dunn, Professor of Political Science and the Director of the International Relations Program at Hobart and William Smith Colleges. And I'm Richard Salter, Professor of Religious Studies and affiliated member of the International Relations Program at Hobart and William Smith Colleges. I'm usually joined by Professor Stacy Philbrick-Yadov, but she's on leave this semester, so the plan is to have a rotating guest from the International Relations Program kind of step in and be the co-host for a different episode each time. Richard, I'm super excited to have you here. Can you just explain briefly what you work on and some of the courses that you teach? Sure. Um, I'm interested in how groups form and maintain themselves. And in the last dozen years or so, I've been especially interested in the religious parts of secular groups. For example, how do ideas about what is sacred end up as part of secular communities like countries? Technically, I teach the Christianity courses in the department, but because Christianity has such a large scope, my focus is really on the places where Christianity intersects with or influences other parts of culture. For example, this semester I'm teaching a class on nationalism. Among other things, studying nationalism includes studying things like how Christian history helps give rise to nations, the ways that myths and rituals help constitute nations, and how national identity might be tied to other ways of identifying, including religious identification. That's great. Thank you. And what will become obvious, I think, to our listeners is the reason why we've invited you here for this podcast. Uh, Each episode of this podcast is actually put together by one of our international relations majors. Today's episode focuses on the Holocaust and its continuing relevance for today's world. And we're joined by the architect of this episode, Hannah Bilton. Hi, Hannah. Can you tell us a bit about yourself? Hi. As Professor Dunn said, my name is Hannah, and I'm a senior here at the colleges. I'm a triple major in international relations, biology, and political science with a minor in writing colleagues. Yeah, a triple major? Yes. That is super (laughs) impressive. Thank you. Very impressive. How did you get interested in this specific topic? Um, I've always been interested in this particular topic, the Holocaust, which um, is kind of why I chose to study international relations. With this major, I've been able to really focus in my studies on the 20th century um, Europe in regards to science, politics, and the sociology that was present throughout the 1920s and 40s. And I really focused in on um, like Italy and Germany and more specifically the events that happened leading up to the Holocaust during and after. I love how you pull together all three of your majors and your interest for this one topic. That's really impressive. And for this episode, Hannah, you spoke with Professor Michael Dubkowski of the Religious Studies Department here at HWS. And one thing I didn't know before this conversation is that his background is actually as a historian. So he brings a really interdisciplinary approach to this work on the Holocaust himself. So let's listen to that conversation now looking at the Holocaust, it wasn't just an isolated event. It didn't happen overnight. Um, and so looking back at the post-World War One societal atmosphere across the globe, there was some sort of shift that happened within society, um, this being reflected in science, policy, institutions. Would you care to talk about how um, this like worldwide sentiment, but especially in Germany, played a role in kind of eugenics policies, policies in the Weimar Republic, um, 
and just overall the transition into the Nazi party? A great question. Um, yes, of course, the Holocaust did not happen in, in, in a vacuum. It didn't happen suddenly. It, um, it was part of major changes, I think, in the 20th century. Some historians have talked about this as the, you know, the challenges posed by modernity. Um, uh, I think the way I, I the way I look at the the event or the phenomenon, I, I look at it. I look at it actually as as an extension of these developments, and particularly, I think I would think about World War Two as an extension of World War One. I. I, I think it is. It's 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 not a five or six year war. It's 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 really a twenty or thirty year war. So, uh, and we can actually uh, go back further uh, if we if we want to understand sort of the political or military uh, antecedents of what what occurred. But uh, I think it's very interesting that you raise the eugenics movement. I don't think we can understand Nazi Germany without understanding its relationship to the eugenics movement. And as, uh, uh, as, as I'm, I'm sure many people know, the United States had a primary role in, um, in the eugenics movement and, and in the thinking of uh, people who thought of themselves as scientists and thought of themselves as doing something positive for the world. So the, the, the eugenics aspect of the Nazi movement and the Nazi policies, and it was an important one. And, I, and, and, the, and the first people targeted, as you know, for both death and for uh, sterilization were, were not Jews in Germany. They were non-Jews. There might have been some Jews within them, but, but it was people who were defined as living a life unworthy of life, that they were not full human beings. They were not perfect human beings in terms of how the Nazis understood them. They had challenges, uh, uh, physical challenges, psychological challenges, addiction challenges. So the, the, that whole environment, I would say the rise of, um, of, of bureaucracies. I, I think uh, Max Weber and others who studied bureaucracy and defined it, uh, in other words, this distancing uh, this creation of um, you know uh, uh, when it works well of a of a of a structure which does not take into account individual personalities, but everybody is supposed to be treated equally, or <laughs> as I might often say, equally badly. You know, these are all developments that are happening uh, in in general society. Of course, the irony is that the Weimar period was so advanced in so many ways. It was. Um, uh, I would say probably uh, medicine in Germany was more advanced than any other place in the world, including the United States. And in the Weimar period, when things were working well, issues of women women's rights and uh, in the in, in in that time period, Jews would be one of the primary groups that were not part of the you know the majority culture. But they found a way. They 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 were. I'm not going to say welcomed necessarily, but they were involved deeply in uh, the production of culture and in science and in medicine and in the legal profession and even in the academic world. So there are lots of things happening um, to say nothing about the rise of fascism. I mean, I don't think that we, we, we can't think of Nazism, you know, 
in uh, isolation from other political developments that are happening almost in every country of Europe and 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 not and not only in Europe in the United States and and in England so there's a there's a rise of the of of right wing extreme nationalistic uh politics fascist movements uh, there, there's a debate among historians whether we should call the not Nazi party a fascist party or call it a, the Nazi party, that it's different than, let's obviously different than Mussolini's fascism, but there are obviously connections. And, and one other thing I would say, and there's a lot of new research which um, uh, suggests that you know, in, in, this, in this post or, or interwar period, when so many changes were taking place and challenges and uh, economic challenges and, and people in Germany as, uh, you know, began to experience the, the, the economic challenges of inflation, et cetera, and feeling disconnected from what, what's happening around them, alienated, we can talk about the, that term of alienation, there's certainly a rise of anti-Jewish thinking and and behavior, not just in Germany. Now, there are historians who want, who obviously ask the question, why Germany? Why not Romania? Well, there was anti-Semitism in Romania. Why not Poland? There was anti-Semitism in Poland, but these nations didn't commit genocide. You know, it's an interesting debate, and I don't, I don't know that we need to go into it right now, but there are historians uh, um, who've written in the last five to 10 years that anti-Judaism, anti-Semitism in Germany was um, of a different kind. Some people use the term eliminationist anti-Semitism, which doesn't necessarily mean killing Jews. It means removing them from German society. So there's a lot of, lot of changes, a lot of things going on. And um, I, I, I think, therefore, it's one of the reasons why I think the Holocaust or studying the Holocaust is so interesting because there's so many areas that you can dive into and, and explore and, and might give you insights into other parallel sorts of issues and questions. So going off of that, you talked a bit about the othering of uh, Jewish people and Jews in Germany, but also just around the world. But what I'm particularly interested in is the othering in the fact that um, ghettos were set up prior to the actual start of what we think of like the concentra concentration camps, the Holocaust, all of that, the biggest one being the Warsaw Ghetto. How do you think that the idea of like quarantining the Jews and putting the Jews as this racial group that needs to be quarantined within ghettos ultimately played a role as its foundation and function within like making a pseudo colony of sorts within the Nazi regime? It's again a terrific question. So ghettos are very important. I would say in the first generation of Holocaust scholarship, understandably, people focused on the concentration camps and the annihilation camps because that was so beyond our experience in some ways. We've had concentration camps before, but we haven't had camps established for the purpose of annihilating people. You know, obviously, particularly Auschwitz, but also uh, killing centers like Treblinka, where most of the Jews of the Warsaw Ghetto were killed. Over 300,000 Jews were, were taken, were deported from the Warsaw Ghetto to the, to the killing camp Treblinka. It had no other function but to kill people. There were about 430,000 Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto. 
And when the Great Deportation began, referred to as the Great Deportation in July of 1942, every single day trains would move from the Warsaw Ghetto to Treblinka. And the only thing stopping the process of annihilation was the, the clogging up of the trains. There were more trains coming than, than could be uh, handled in that place. So the obvious attention initially went to the, the, the annihilation camps. I would say in the last decade, there's been a slight shift and also new information and new data, which would suggest that um, another major aspect of the killing operation was open air, open air shootings committed by uh, S specific SS units, Einsatzgruppen, that were devoted to this and trained, but also even more shocking in a way, the so-called ordinary people, the ordinary police. Christopher Browning and others have written about this. So these were police units that one day might be uh, taking care of traffic in Hamburg, and then two weeks later, they would find themselves uh, training in Poland. And a week after that, they would find themselves gathering up people and shooting them into open air pits. We think somewhere between a million and a half and two million people were killed this way. We know more than we knew before because with the fall of the Soviet Union, archives have been opened. And um, there are people, forensic anthropologists and others, who have spent the last decade studying this, identifying sites, memorializing sites, etc. And in the last five or 10 years, there's been a third shift. And that shift has been to look at more closely the whole policy of ghettoization. Why was it implemented? What were the goals? How did it work? Did it work the same way in um, all the major cities of Poland where the ghettos were established? What about ghettos of smaller cities? Did they have a different kind of function? One interpretation, which I, th I still think is compelling, is that even as late as September 21st, 1939, meaning three weeks after the German attack against Poland, when the first orders of ghettoization were, were, were ordered, I don't think, or many scholars don't think, that the Nazis, the Nazi hierarchy, knew exactly yet what they were going to do with all of these millions of Jews. And how were they going to deal with them? And I think the, uh, the ghettoization process which was implemented very, very early in Poland. And then when uh, Germany invaded the Soviet Union in the summer of 1941, implemented in uh, Eastern Poland, the, what is now the country of Belarus, for example, when other ghettos were established, I think it was, um, it had multi-purposes. One, to gather and identify and, and, and quarantine, if we want to use that term, and isolate as, as many Jews as could be isolated across Poland and ultimately beyond Poland because the Nazis identified potentially 11 million Jews that they wanted to target. We know that number because at the conference in 
in Vance in January of 1942 when the final solution was reported uh, nine members of the German bureaucracy, you know, people involved in the Justice Department, in their foreign affairs, etc. That was the figure that their uh, so-called statisticians came up with. That's actually came up with the graph of the Jews that they believed uh, were, were, were no longer alive and the Jews that were still alive and where they, and where they existed. By the way, the United States was not on that list, which leaves some people to say that the Nazis never would have, they didn't think they would ever have a chance to get at the four and a half million Jews who live in the United States. That, those Jews were not included, but, but the Jews of the Soviet Union were included. So it, the ghettos had multiple, multiple purposes, uh, isolation, concentration, slow death, because the people isolated in, in the ghettos were, were not given adequate food and certainly didn't have a, adequate uh, shelter and heat uh, for the harsh winters in Poland. Uh, disease was rampant. And if we just take the, the Warsaw Ghetto, for example, uh, Jews were dying by, by, by the hundreds every single day before the deportations but from disease and from hunger and from and from despair <clears throat> i think we have to understand that ghettos mean sections of cities that are isolated without communication um really cut off and then some people also say that it made it easier for the nazis to implement the final, final solution. Because by the time these Jews were put on trains, whether it was the Jews of, let's say, Elie Wiesel's little town of Siget or the Jews of Warsaw, they were in horrible shape. They didn't look, I mean, you could argue that they almost didn't look human. We, we see this tragically, and I, I have my own problems with this, but if you, if people are interested, the the Nazis sent their own documentary filmmakers into these ghettos, and they filmed. And they actually focused, for example, on the Warsaw Ghetto, on particular people that they followed through month after month, as if they wanted to document what happens in a ghetto month after month, for whatever purposes they may have had. So, yeah, I'm also very interested now in... in, in diving deeper into into the ghetto experiences. Because like many things in the Holocaust, I don't think there is a, an experience. There's not a Holocaust experience. There's a, millions of experiences. So as we were talking to, the Holocaust and anti-Semitism was more than just one isolated event in history, like we said before. But across decades, the kind of lessons that we've learned or the research has gone into figuring out how this could happen has really shaped kind of culture studies, all of that, um, in the years that have followed. So in what ways do you think that the Holocaust and doing this research and all of that continues to have some sort of resonance within our contemporary world and how does it affect us going forward? I mean, the optimist in me <laughs> would say that I hope it does. I hope it affects the way we view the world. I hope it affects the way we view you know institutions and what can happen and what happens if you allow technology to run amok if you allow science to run amok if you allow medicine to run amok 
you dehumanize certain categories of people, you other certain categories of people. I would hope that studying Holocaust, the Holocaust, studying genocides will inform, has informed our understanding of other situations, other historical situations and other developments in, in, in science and in, in culture and technology and make, makes, helps make us more sensitive to the dangers that we might isolate coming out of that period. What can we learn from that period? So that's the optimist in me. I would be remiss if I didn't say that I'm a little more discouraged now than I might have been 10 or 20 years ago because we see a rise of extreme right-wing politics in the world. We see a rise of white supremacy in the world. We see a rise of anti-Semitism in the world, other kinds of prejudice in the world. Our own country, don't need to necessarily go into it specifically, but I think we all know what we've, what we've witnessed. And there are groups in society that uh, are intentionally not interested in this history, or even worse, want to revise this history, want to challenge this history in fundamental ways. Of course, we can challenge aspects of this, but you know, in fundamental ways. Sadly, there are large segments of populations, even in well-exposed, educated countries, where young people and older people just don't know. I mean, recent statistics about what American young people know about the Holocaust is pretty frightening, even after all of these years and all of these thousands of books and thousands of courses and thousands of films and whatever. I think there, you know, I think there are many well, so-called well-educated people. If you just said, could you name one concentration camp? Maybe they can come up with Auschwitz or maybe they'd come up with Dachau. I don't know, but they don't know much more than that. And lots of people wouldn't, wouldn't be able to even come up with those names. So for me, it's all the more reason to keep at it. It's uh, not just for me to keep at it, but it's all the more reason for us to continue to, to, to study this and to uh, write about it and to try, to, try to, to, to bring our understanding of those events to the situations that we're facing today without making you know, uh, comparisons that are, that are not, I think, historically um, supportable. Just one example of the last several days, weeks, lots of people are making comparisons between uh, vaccine mandates and and Nazi Germany. They use they just go right to Nazi Germany, vaccine mandates, Nazi Germany. I mean, I think there are some maybe some things we can say about those two phenomena that might be interesting in the same conversation, but I don't think. I don't think it does uh, it does service to either the issue of vaccine mandates or the or what the Holocaust was. So thinking about everything you've just said and those words of caution about how we need to really further the study, do you have any more um, comments or anything else you would like to say about the Holocaust in our world today? So one of the things that I'm struck by, you know, I've often you know heard people say. Sometimes they've even said it to me. So it's. 70 years ago, 
as I said, there are thousands and thousands of books, literally so much research, so much done. Like what, what, what else do we need to know? You know, and I, I'll take that as a friendly question. Like what, what else do we need to know? We know it. This is the, probably the most well-studied recent phenomenon in history, but I'm struck by how many interesting new aspects of that experience are coming out just in the last year, just in the last months. Books have been published on the partisans of, 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 of Belarusia. There are two books that just came out in the last weeks on women partisan fighters, on uh, family units that lived in the forests of Poland, Russia for two, two and a half years, and how did they survive? A in-depth analysis of one shooting of a family with eight members by a great historian, Wendy Lauer, called The Ravine, just published last year, based on a photograph. Somebody showed her a photograph of the shooting, and she decided, well, is it possible to identify who the victims were? And is it possible to identify who the shooters were? And who took the photograph? And why did they take the photograph? And it's a fascinating study about one family that was massacred and who the people were who did it, which has a lot to say about bystanders, so-called bystanders or onlookers, which again is a issue that I think we need more information about. There's a great book. It's not translated yet into English, will be probably any month now, called The End of the Warsaw Ghetto. It's published by a great Israeli historian in Hebrew about the last weeks of the Warsaw Ghetto. So again, you might say, what can we learn about the last weeks? We can learn a lot. We can learn a lot. What, what how, how do people living in extreme circumstances behave and what did they decide to do and, and, and how did it actually work through? We have an, uh, uh, the country of Poland pushing back on what it considers to be unfair criticism of Polish, potential Polish or actual Polish complicity during the Holocaust. Not that Poland, of course, the, the, the Nazis perpetrated the Holocaust on Polish land, right? The six killing camps are on Polish land, but they were Nazi killing camps on Polish land. But there was an issue of Polish complicity. It's created uh, little little firestorms between the United States and Poland, between England and Poland, between Germany, I'm sorry, Germany and Poland now, and between Israel and Poland. I have a granddaughter in, in Israel who's supposed to go on a study trip to Poland, and she can't probably, she doesn't know if she can't go yet. They're supposed to leave on next Wednesday, not because of COVID, not because of vaccine issues, because the Polish government is in, a, is in a huff with the Israeli government, which is in a huff over what, what Poland has been saying about actually academic fr uh, uh, freedom of speech. Uh, when, when we were in Poland the last time with students, it was against the law to do what I did under a bridge in Krakow, but I did it on purpose, which is to say, talk about this issue in Poland, in Krakow, under a bridge, which at that point, this was before the, the 
the very controversial law about what you could say and teach in Poland was reversed a bit. But I think it was a matter of principle. I'm, I'm, uh, I wasn't going to get arrested. I was pretty sure about that. But I, I just thought it was important for the students to know that these issues, although it happened 70 years ago, are still very much alive. So what's my point? My point is there's still a lot to learn. It tells us a lot about contemporary politics. If we want to understand a little bit of the historical context of what might be going on in this rise of extremist politics and white supremacy in Europe, in the United States, just like your first question, this doesn't come out of nowhere. There's a history here. We need to string it back. We need to see. We need to see what was behind it. Can we learn something? So um, I guess my final thoughts would be, I'm going to end on the optimistic side that there are uh, students like you and others who are interested in this subject. What could be more helpful than that? So I really appreciate the opportunity to share some thoughts with you. I, I don't think there's anything more important actually that I do than, than, than working in this subject area in one way or another. Thank you so much for coming and talking with me about this today. Thank you. Part of what strikes me about Professor Dubkowski's comments about the post-World War I period is the range of topics he points to as setting the context for the Holocaust. We might be tempted to see the Holocaust as simply arising out of hatred and anti-Semitism, but he mentions a confluence of everything from the rise of science and the hopes of eugenicists through to the growth of impersonal bureaucracies. Yes, as we mentioned, the Holocaust wasn't an isolated event of just blatant anti-Semitism. Rather, there was a global shift in the perspective of science, and this especially happened through the publication of Darwin's theory of natural selection, which began what considered, I think, the first wave of genetic revolution, the second wave being the um, latter end of the 1990s with um, genetic coding and all of that. But in this time, science was really hyper-focused on the idea of racial hygiene, which gave this like pseudo-scientific validation to this racialized policy that was seen throughout the period. So in Germany, there was already policy existing prior to the Nazis that worked to limit people that didn't fit the ideal norms or perceived norms of that republic. But what really allowed for the extreme racialized sentiments and practices of the Nazis was the coupling of this natural selection idea and racial hygiene in the science world with the social atmosphere of discontent and finding someone to place blame within the nation following the closure of World War I. That, that's really interesting. You know, as I was listening to the conversation, particularly when Michael Dubkowski was entertaining that question, what else is there to learn about the Holocaust? I was thinking about anthropologist Sven Linkwist's work, Exterminate All the Brutes, which has become a documentary film, but it's, his work is actually a little bit different from the documentary. His work explicitly looks at the uh, Europe's violent imperial conquest of Africa, and he connects it directly with the development of the Holocaust. And as he notes, we want to think genocide began and ended with Nazi Germany, but of course it didn't. It's an amazing book. It actually begins and ends with the same passage, which is, quote, we already know enough. It's not knowledge that we lack. What is missing is the courage to understand what we know and to draw conclusions. Hannah, speaking personally as someone who's been thinking about a variety of these issues related to the Holocaust, what are some of the significant conclusions that you've drawn? 
I think the biggest takeaway is that nothing ever happens in isolation. So no event is just simply what it occurs. Um, It's said that we study history so we don't repeat it. But in doing so, we really break down the entire the entirety of like time periods, events and people to a singular person or a singular event, discounting what led up to those people or those events becoming so significant in history. So elements of society are repeating themselves, like political shifts in either direction, the rise of social movements, and the way in which scientific discovery is executed. And these patterns are what are really important to understand and to study in order to analyze history, and especially in the way that we are working towards predicting how society will be moving in the future. I've heard some comments similar to those Professor Dubkowski mentioned that ask what else we need to know about the Holocaust Clearly, the recent research on the Holocaust, uh, on the Holocaust by bullets and the Einsatzgruppen, or the new research into the formation and functions of ghettos, uncover layers that we didn't know before. But it, it seems to me that there can be an urge to wrap up atrocities like the Holocaust in neat moral packages so that we can put them away. I wonder what the desire to close the door on the Holocaust reveals about ourselves. Yeah, you know, I was also struck by Professor Dubkowski's observation about how we see extremist hate-driven impulses across the contemporary world today that echo those that engendered the Holocaust. And at the same time, we're also witnessing how Holocaust analogies have become politicized, I mean, even weaponized, one might say, in contemporary political discourse. And of course, those analogies are employed in an attempt to raise the significance of the events being compared to the Holocaust, but there also results an erosion or a denigration of the meaning and importance of the Holocaust, which of course may also be one of the purposes of employing the analogy. Hannah, do you have any thoughts on that? What's really striking to me about like the use of the Holocaust or Nazi analogy, analogies today is that while the Holocaust is unlike anything in history and the Nazi party is such a multifaceted point of study within the 20th century, it really has me wondering whether or not these analogies say more about the direction that our society is going in or the lack of just overall education and awareness within the public because we have the knowledge of what happened, but how is it being used within our society today or is it properly being used is what it really gets me thinking about. Wow, that's great. That's a great reflection there. You know, for each episode, we try to incorporate what we call a non-traditional text, whether it be a song, poem, or a diary entry. And for this episode, Hannah, you chose It's Good to Have Two Eyes by Itzhak Viner. Can you tell us a little bit about that selection and why you chose it? Um, Yeah, so this poem was originally written in Yiddish, and it was from the Warsaw Ghetto, which is the same ghetto that Professor Dubkowski and I talked about. The poem highlights the struggles of life within the ghetto, where on the one hand, there's hope and desire for the people within to live, but within the walls of the ghettos, what's actually seen is only oppression and death. The ghettoization process created an almost colony or pseudo-colony type of structure where the state controlled life through policy and policing within, but the people were not seen as citizens or members of the state. Instead, these people really had no economic purpose, which you would see with a colony. Their main purpose was social in essence, which is why they were secluded up in these areas of the city. That's a great introduction and set up for the poem. We're going to listen to that poem now. And it's actually being read to us by Christina Rock, a theater student here at Hobart and William Smith Colleges. Good it is to have two eyes. Anything I want, they see. 
boats and trains, horses, cars, everything there is on Earth. But it happens sometimes that I want to see a person laugh, but instead I see a corpse stretched out in the street. When I want to see one laugh, his eyes are closed forever. 2. Good it is to have two ears. Anything I want, they hear. Songs, plays, concert of words, streetcars, bells, anything. I want to hear the children voices sing, but ears hear only screams of two children near a corpse. When I want youthful song, crying children hours long. 3. Good it is to have two hands, every year to till the land. Banging iron day and night makes the wheels to till. Wheels are standing silent still. People's hands are obsolete. Cold and darkness in the house, hands digging a grave. Good it is to have two hands. I write poems about the truth. That's a lovely poem. Uh, I'm thinking about it. I've traveled actually with Professor Dubkowski to um, to Warsaw and and walked about about parts of the uh, area that used to be in the ghetto. But of course, it's transformed now. But it makes me think back on some of the the films that he referred to that Nazis made of the ghetto and uh, how how disconcerting and how eerie and dehumanizing those those films uh, were. It definitely makes you reflect and see that while there is some hope within these people, like, and nowadays how everything has changed and there is new life within where the ghetto used to be, like, now standing over it, there have been nothing but, like, violence and complete oppression within those areas. And I think today that's something we really need to recognize as walking around just as normal people. What is the history behind where we are and what we're doing? Hannah, I want to thank you for that fantastic conversation with Professor Dubkowski and for your really you know, sharp, insightful reflections here. And Richard, thank you so much for co-hosting with me and offering your own really uh, interesting insights and your own thoughts here. This whole episode's a powerful reminder that the Holocaust is not just a historical event, but it continues to resonate in the contemporary world in multiple and varied ways, from individuals and families still grappling with the pain and suffering inflicted to how it continues to affect diplomatic relations between states. As Professor Dukowski pointed out, there's still much to learn both about the Holocaust and from the Holocaust. It continues to have a powerful and complicated legacy. And around here, we always know that things are more complicated than they first appear. Thank you both so much. You've been listening to It's More Complicated Than That, a podcast on world affairs produced by the students and faculty of the International Relations Program at Hobart and William Smith Colleges. This episode was conceived by Hannah Bilton, hosted by Richard Salter and Kevin Dunn. The producer is me, Kelly Walker, with additional voiceover by Christina Rock. This has been a production of the IR program at HWS and the Geneva Sound Factory. Thanks for listening.